So understanding that internal driver when things get tough, I think that that's a, another key component to entrepreneurs succeeding is. Cameron Law, the executive director of Social Venture Partners of Sacramento. The executive director for the Carlson Center of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Cameron is really at the nexus of the local startup community. The mission of his organization is to foster the development of entrepreneurial activities here locally in Sacramento and uh, elsewhere around the country and the world. So do you think entrepreneurship can be taught? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think there's elements that could be taught and I think you're kind of getting into the DNA component of it. I think there's part of that is like a risk profile. Speaking about Elon Musk, did you hear about like that interview he did, you know, where he talked about AI and like how he thinks AI should be halted until there's more regulation? The rise of all this AI is like, ooh, this is kind of scary. Some people that are in this space say that, yeah, AI is going to wipe out everything and people are not going to have any jobs. So we need to come up with something like a universal basic income. What's your take on that? AI is kind of its own thing in terms of a, I don't know if you'd call it a bean, but it's kind of own thing. If you use it as a tool, right? Like I don't have like, Whenever I think of business icons, right, I, um, a lot of them, you hear their stories, they're like, they drop out of school, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs in the world, they didn't go to school for entrepreneurship. So do you think entrepreneurship can be taught? Or is it kind of like a special talent, like you're kind of like born with it or, or you don't? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think there's elements that could be taught. And I think there's like, I think what, you know, if you're kind of getting into the DNA component of it, I think there's uh, part of that is like a risk profile. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's a harder thing to teach is like someone's comfortability with taking risks and what that actually looks like. I think often we uh, portray entrepreneurs to be these, uh, you know, wild west people that are, you know, making all these risky decisions. But I think entrepreneurs are actually quite calculated in the risk that they take. Um, and so a lot of kind of the education that we would support a founder with is how to systematically de-risk the things around it. And so um, mm -hmm. I think there's elements that could be taught, but ultimately if there's, you're trying to create a scalable startup where there's no proven business model around it, there's not anything to teach in terms of here's how it's been done before outside right. of here's kind of the process that you can do, but every business is going to be different. And so um, I think there's elements that certainly can be taught, but um, there are some intrinsic, I think, components. And I think the last thing I would hit on that is, um, you know, I would look at probably entrepreneurs and, you know, a key question to ask is like, why are you doing it? Um, mm -hmm. You know, is it mm -hmm. to get rich or is it to create change or <clears throat> those types of things, right? Internal driver when things get tough. Um, I think that that's a, another key component to entrepreneurs succeeding is really uh, connecting to like, why, why am I doing this? Um, mm -hmm. And when the rubber meets the road, um, you know, how am I going to get through the challenging times? Right. Yeah. I think having a vision, having a purpose, you know, a strong why is so important in startup land because, you know, it's going to be difficult. You know, there's going to be, I mean, 90% of startups fail, right? So like um, it's going to be difficult. So when those difficult times come, do you have a vision enough that's compelling you to continue to move forward and persevere? So I think that's huge. And yeah, what you mentioned about like personality and maybe background is so important like dna like i am reading this book called uh, buy back your time and one of the things he says is like there's studies showing that entrepreneurs uh, many of them have a really hard background you know when they're kids and so they kind of one of the personality profiles is like are they able to deal with chaos 
you know, and if you're able to deal with chaos when you're younger, you're more likely to deal with chaos in the startup world. So I thought that was really interesting too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's <clears throat> that core driver, like what, what pushes you at the end of the day. And um, you're mentioning vision. I think that that's a, a really key thing for a couple of things. One for, you know, the founder themselves, like why, where do they see themselves going, but without vision and articulating that vision to other people, no one can help you get to where you want to go. Um, and I find a lot of times that um, founders are hesitant to share that vision, partly because um, that's like their baby, right? It was like, I see this thing and I want to go create it, but um, I don't want it to be, you know, someone to say, oh, this isn't a good idea, or, you know, I don't necessarily see what you're seeing. Um, but really, the only way you can get there is by articulating it and getting people to um, rally around that type of support. And that's how you get the co-founders, first customers, and all those types of things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I mean, in a day-to-day, -day, like you probably see, or in the past few years of you, you know, being at that center, you've probably seen many startups come and you know if 90% of them fail many of them go so like have you noticed maybe a kind of data point on why startups fail like so, so yeah many I mean, fail? yeah it's a good question um, I think a lot of startups fail for uh, two major reasons one is just like the either the lack of founding team or the founding team kind of falling apart and losing their kind of like uh I guess, connection as a team and why they're doing that. And that could be related mm -hmm. to the vision. And, uh, you know, as you kind of get in the work was like, oh, we actually see this differently and not having the the skills to push that forward. I think that that's one. And then the other is just, there's not a, a need for what they're trying to bring. Um, and so we talk a lot mm -hmm. about um, what's called the innovators bias. So a lot of times we get founders of like, ah, oh, I have this gift to bring to the world and I'm going to, mm -hmm. um, you know, go build it and they will come. Right. Um, we, we hear that saying all the time, build it and they'll come. It's like, no, you need to understand who you're targeting and what problems mm -hmm. are they um, trying to have solved? And then how does your solution fit that? And so um, that's often where I think we see a lot of people fall is just, or fail is just not understanding the marketplace and do people really want what you have? Um, and that could be, you know, maybe you're too early to market and it's just currently that need isn't there in that same way. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that would be one of the, the things that comes to mind. Hmm. Interesting. So how do you find that balance though? Because like, I just think of someone like Elon Musk, right? And he wants to get us to Mars. And I don't think there's a particular huge need. <laughs> need. I mean, maybe there is of people out there that want to go to Mars too, but like, how do you like balance like that vision of where you think you have something that everybody will want to come, you know, um, versus going out there and like seeing if people need it? Yeah. So I think the like the balance, right, is like even probably an example of, you know, Elon Musk trying to get people to go to Mars. And, and an example actually that he's done is when he started building Tesla, uh, he, instead of going and building the whole car, right, he decided to buy a Lotus and then put in, in a battery powered engine in there and said, hey, would you buy this? And he did pre-sales even before mm -hmm. building the car, right? And so he mm -hmm. was able to demonstrate that there was a need to now then use those funds to develop it. Um, and so, you know, probably similar with, you know, uh, Richard Branson and doing flights to like just the edge of space, right? Was like mm -hmm. pre-selling those tickets demonstrates that people have a need and then you can deliver mm -hmm. on it versus like, okay, I'm going to go build this whole airline 
all these things that do that without then like getting any of the feedback from the marketplace. And so um, I think it, that that's how I would ultimately kind of look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going to Mars, I think there's a, a larger, you know, uh, space in terms of like, well, space, <laughs> no, no pun intended, but um, was, uh, you know, the people that like see the demise of kind of the earth, like ending, right, or whatever. And mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, my need is like for future generations to get there, right? And so it's like, okay, I want to be the first on that list whenever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think there's kind of the varying levels of what that looks like. But, um, you know, for me, I see everything from people, you know, creating apps and software to I want to create a restaurant and, you know, it still is the basis of who are you targeting? Like, okay, you, mm-hmm. you're building a, a Mexican restaurant. Well, what's the, the type of person that you see coming in? Is it going to be fast food? Is it going to be a sit down? Is it going to be a mix? Right. And so what's the core driver of why they would come to your space versus another? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There still has to be a need. And now that I think about it, I guess a need to go to Mars and he mentioned this is you know uh the like the likelihood of earth um basically blowing up into flames whether it's hit by an asteroid or whether or not um world war three and you know we nuke each other you know like stuff like that like having a secondary place to diversify our you know the basket so to speak um so to speak so that way like we don't all die and civilization comes to an end, you know? So, mm-hmm. so um, speaking about Elon Musk, did you hear about like that interview he did, you know, where he talked about AI and like how he thinks AI should be halted until there's more regulation? I, I didn't uh, see that, but um, yeah, I can imagine it being an interesting uh, conversation nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the the growth of AI is, uh, I mean, pretty next to, to none. I, um, I was actually, we, I just had launched a podcast myself and we were talking about, mm. we do this thing called like frivolous thoughts. And so I had just recently rewatched the matrix uh, series oh. and I was like, um, when the first time I saw it, I was really young and I, you know, uh, whether this is good or not, I didn't really, un- I liked the action around it, but mm-hmm. I didn't really like understand the like premise of what it was saying. And then right. like with the rise of all this AI, I was like, Ooh, this is kind of scary, mm-hmm. um, looking at that. And so, um, I think there is a good balance that needs to be, you know, uh, you know, striked with, you know, uh, AI and some of the the things around it. But, um, you know, sometimes over regulation can, you know, halter any of the innovation as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a fine line, isn't it? It's like, you know, making sure the government doesn't get too involved to where like you limit innovation. And like in China, you know, sometimes like it's they stop it, you know, before um and it deters innovation and entrepreneurship sometimes because of the government regulation and allowing support to allow founders to just kind of do their thing and and build the next innovation um but then something you know related to ai where like it is such a powerful tool that bad actors and not regulating it could could um lead to disaster so yeah, I mean, what uh, are you seeing any like innovations at your center around AI? Um, so yeah, I think I mean I'm trying to think of some of the ones that we've, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I think some of the ones recently have been um, related to kind of like um, there were some around like I think it was a healthcare um, to be able to recognize patterns and and things like that. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like a, a growing. Um, I haven't seen like any like real 
startups taking off, but there's definitely an active conversation and exploring that space to see how it can be utilized. I think for me, the um, I mean, the the list of new AI tools that came out in the last you know month and a half or two months has been you know pretty crazy. And so as mm-hmm. I look at it as a as a founder, how you can use those tools to scale some of that early stage process. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of like you know most most people know of ChatGPT now, and mm-hmm. um, using that to help you build scripts or ways to better build your website to get started. And um, it, it accelerates a lot of that information beforehand. Um, that sometimes took a founder, you know, a good chunk of time to to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've been uh, playing around with ChatGPT too, and I'm actually doing a class next month about nine um, mind blowing AI tools that people could use that are new. So um, I'll be sharing that next month. And uh, yeah, I've been really playing a lot around like these new AI tools, and it's so, it so blows my mind about how much time it saves and what it's capable of doing. Um, I mean, what are your, uh, you know, like you hear about these, I would say two camps, you know, there's a camp of like, AI is not going to replace, I mean, it's going to replace jobs, but as human beings, we always figure out a way to create more jobs, right? Kind of like with the industrial revolution. And then some people that are in the space say that, yeah, AI is going to wipe out everything and people are not going to have any jobs. So we need to come up with something like a universal basic income where people can survive because, there's not going to be enough jobs for everybody. So what, what's your take on that? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good, good question. I mean, I think I probably would lean a little bit more to the, like the first element of things that I don't see it necessarily replacing uh, people. I mean, I think there's elements of where it could, um, but I think it's more of, if you see that being the case, that's an opportunity for you to, to work with AI to, uh, enhance what you already do, right? So it's mm-hmm. really for me taking it as a tool versus it being a thing in and of itself, which is kind of an interesting, I think, conversation at some point to have is like AI is kind of its own thing in terms of a, I don't know if you'd call it a bean, but um, you know, it is its kind of own thing. But if you use it as a tool, right? Like I don't have like chat GPT just running in my life, but I mm-hmm. say, okay, I, I have to ask it these prompts and the the results are only as good as the questions that I'm asking. And so the skill set is less of me memorizing information. It's about me having the creativity to ask questions that will derive information that's of value to whoever I'm trying to share that information with. And so um, I think that that's kind of the, the shift was just like, oh, you know, the, you know, the internet's going to change all these things. Well, it's a tool that we use to get more information more quickly to then build things quicker, faster, all those types of things. So mm-hmm. um but I think, yeah, when you start integrating it into more of, you know, it, uh, you know, running your day-to-day everything, um, that would be an interesting, uh, you know, component of it all. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, yeah, I could definitely see that, you know, I kind of actually bounce back and forth, you know, on this topic, I'm kind of in the middle, I haven't made up my mind yet about, you know, whether or not it's going to replace all jobs and where we will need to have a universal basic income or, you know, there's going to still be plenty of jobs for everybody. I guess, you know, we'll, we'll eventually see. But um, uh, any other sort of cool technologies that you've, you know, run into being at the center with uh, working with all these startups? Technologies. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, it's everything from hardware things to to software. So, um, I mean, one of the cool things that, so I, my background prior to this was, uh, I was a baseball player. And so um, mm-hmm. one company I've 
connected with uh, called Core Impact. They're based out of Elk Grove and they have a really cool device that they um, can track like EKG and all these different things to like, you know, help your swing and make oh, it more accessible wow. for people to get training when they might not have the means to. Um, so, you know, there's things like that to, um, you know, we just had a uh, pitch competition that we um, led with the Western Placer Waste Management Authority on kind of the circular economy and one of the, the winning team, they are a company called Aggen and they use uh, black soldier flies to uh, de decompose um, waste and, uh, you know, basically food waste much more quickly. It's like 300% faster. And then mm -hmm. they sell the, um, the soldier flies in the market to like pet stores that people use for reptiles. And so it's like, there's so many different things that are out there trying to solve problems. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the list could certainly go on, but those are the, I think just top two that came uh, more recently that I've engaged with. So. Wow. That's really neat. That's awesome. So, um, you know, the one with like, so it uh, kind of explain it again, it basically takes waste, reduce it, faster you said 300 percent faster and then the waste can be used as food for reptiles so so yeah so uh currently like a lot of decom uh like decomposition they use worms and so worms can oh. uh, only decompose so quickly and then they only can decompose a certain kind of like set of food waste whereas the black soldier flies have a um you know greater capacity to digest meats and certain things mm -hmm. that a, a worm's just not going to. And so they do that one faster than the worms do, but then also they can sell the, the flies uh, to pet stores that then are used as reptile food. So because um, wow. flies only live for a certain amount of time. And so they basically can see where they're at in their uh, overall lifespan um, to be able to, to then sell in the market. So it's not just like a, you know, they're eating the the waste and then they die. Mm -hmm. They they have another purpose. So. Huh. Wow. That is really neat. That is awesome. Yeah. It's, it blows my mind about, you know, the ideas that people come up with. And that's why I love being in the startup space. You know, it's seeing what people are, um, ideas that people are bringing to life. That's really making an impact um, in people. So I know that, you know, you're involved in the social impact space, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about like, your time, uh, I think it was so social, is it impact partners or something like that? Yeah. Social venture partners. Venture partners yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So prior to joining the Carlson center, I um, was leading a nonprofit called social venture partners, where um, basically we took a venture capital approach to philanthropy um, mm -hmm. where I would bring on individual and corporate uh, donors. And then we would uh, with those larger size, you know, we were able to pool those funds and provide larger size grants to educational nonprofits and then help them scale both through the capital, but also through kind of what we called skills-based volunteerism. So most of our uh, partners that contributed to this fund uh, were entrepreneurs themselves. So they had that kind of experience that could help these executive directors or teams start to kind of grow and scale their businesses. And so one of the um, great programs that we ran was called Fast Pitch, where we'd bring in 20 nonprofits with the purpose to help them hone their three-minute pitch. And so we would take them through a series of workshops and kind of pitch uh, sessions. And uh, we would always finish with a, a pitch competition um, called Fast Pitch. And when I was there, we would do it at Golden One Center, um, but we'd have over like a thousand people there and raised uh, close to $200,000 for those nonprofits um, at the event. But the the core part of that program was to give them 
the tools to be able to speak about the impact that they make. And so kind of to earlier in our conversation was, you know, as a mission-driven organization, being able to articulate your vision is key, but also being able to demonstrate, you know, this dollar that you're donating or kind of investing into this impact, like what's going to happen from that. And so helping them kind of go through that process to hone that messaging was a lot of our, our work. And um, we really focused on the education space. So kind of similar to venture capital firm, you kind of set your thesis. And so our thesis was much more around like educational um, nonprofits and particularly through uh, education being a, a key to creating um, educational attainment and then having a, you know, opportunity to, um, you know, make uh, above living wage job opportunities. Hmm. Wow. That is really neat. So I'm just thinking, how, how does a company measure impact? You know, if you, um, you know, if there's a company that comes your way and they're like, I, I want to do good, I want to make an impact. How do companies measure that? Yeah. So I think it, it often depends on like, what is there and like, what are they trying to do? So if you're trying to um, increase graduation rates, well, it's pretty clear on how you're, are you hitting that metric of increasing graduation rates or, um, uh, and that's, you know, um, you know, one way if it's, uh, you know, you're trying to tackle our unhoused issue, are you getting people off the street and getting them into permanent housing or those types of things? And then what's the, like, are they, is that actually sticking, right? So it's not just like, okay, we, you know, we uh, place people in kind of this housing, but um, are they staying there and then starting to get jobs and all of those types of things. And so those are some of the metrics that you can look at um, in terms of kind of like, you know, say for ourselves and like measuring, you know, uh, supporting founders, it could be, you know, are they um, continuing on to one uh, raise capital? Are they getting to revenue numbers? Um did they, uh, you know, do they feel more confident as founders, those types of things? And so um, it kind of depends on, I think, the particular type of uh, organization at hand. But mm, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I, um, I don't know if you know, but uh, so like my company, Fongbo Media, one of my mission, you know, for this company is to eventually start a um, an accelerator for nonprofits. So I used to work at a um, startup accelerator and worked there for about a year. And I learned so much working with 10 different startup companies, helping them basically scale um, through sales, marketing, venture capital. And so I'm like, hmm, what if we can create something like that, but instead of for startups, we create it for people that have an idea for nonprofits, you know, and accelerate that. And, and that way we could help through business, just accelerate their growth. And that way they can serve the people that they want to. So um, in that sense, you know, like I, I, I'm building this company for that, you know, to create a social impact in the world. And so I, it's so amazing to see other people have different ideas of how we could tackle problems, you know, that, that our society needs help with. Totally. I, yeah, I would definitely recommend connecting with social venture partners. They, um, have a new interim executive director, Brad Squires. He's a um, he's a, he's been a tech founder before and had an exit. Um, so he'd be really, really good to, to connect with. And, you know, one of the things as you were sharing that was, um, not, not a ton of people know Sacramento has the second most nonprofits per capita outside of Washington, DC. And so, wow, um, really? there's a big kind of social impact, um, component here. And there's, a you know, there's a, a good thing of that is that, okay, we're, you know, maybe bent towards trying to solve problems in a social impact way, but it's mm -hmm. also a very competitive market if you're 
trying to raise funds or if your business model is based on philanthropy, um, mm -hmm. there's, you know, so much that you can get in terms of donations if there's more and more nonprofits being started. So, mm -hmm. um, so you really have to have that kind of focus on how are you being innovative in solving that problem and doing it differently um, than the people that you're trying to, uh, that are currently trying to solve that problem. And I think, you know, one of the things earlier in my time at Social Venture Partners, which I learned being here and being around kind of more and more types of founders was um, really understanding the difference between uh, your beneficiaries, right? So the people you, that you're serving and what, what are their needs and connecting to serving them in the way that they want to be served, but then being able to take that information of impact and stories and turning that into conversations that you then can get from your customers, which are donors, uh, municipalities, grants, whatever that might be that want to, you know, basically buy that impact uh, to create change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I've um, I talked to another nonprofit person, and they talked a little bit about like, you know, not just going to nonprofits and saying, can you give us money, but like, what in exchange will they get out of it, you know, because they're a business too, you know, and they would like, whether it's recognition, whether it's like, you know, something, something tangible that they could use, you know, as a business. Yeah, t totally. Um, and a lot of that you see, you know, they either want marketing or they want to be associated with a cause. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's definitely components to that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the interesting books for me was uh, it's called Reinventing Philanthropy, um, mm -hmm. really looking at how we can kind of shift the mindset of like investing in impact to from being kind of like a do good where, you know, hey, we're supporting these nonprofits and, you know, we get to have our branding associated with it um, versus kind of being a do bester where it's like, we're really focused in just creating the change and investing in that work happening. Um, and so um, that was just kind of one of the, the differences there. Hmm. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. You don't know how, how excited you made me feel after you told me that Sacramento is the second, I didn't know that, um, uh, second most outside of uh, Washington DC is in terms of like how many nonprofits there are, right? Yeah. So yeah, second mm -hmm. most nonprofits per capita. So per capita, um, yeah. based on like, you know, the number of people that live here, mm -hmm. um, we have the second most. So Wow. That's neat. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Sacramento is a hub for nonprofits? <laughs> I think there's a, a couple things. So technically in the realm of like nonprofits, you have advocacy organizations. So being, you know, the capital of the third or fourth largest economy in the world, um, mm -hmm. you're naturally going to have um, people that are um, advocacy organizations that want to lobby bills and certain things like that. So that's part of that work. And that is a key driver to creating changes, creating new policies that um, shift funds or investment into communities. So that's definitely one way. So I think that that's one of the key components to it. And, you know, part of it's maybe just uh, Sacramento and the culture of wanting to solve our problems and, um, you know, trying to, you know, I think Sacramento's uh, pretty relentlessly Sacramento um, you can see that with our Kings and all that, right? We, we mm -hmm. rally around those types of things. And so um, trying to solve our own problems and, um, you know, come up with new organizations to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what do you think it's going to, you know, so we got the nonprofit space down and our Kings are doing pretty well. So what about our startup space? You know, what can we do to really grow a startup and entrepreneurship in Sacramento? I think it's it's happening. Um, so I, I think it's just a, a, a matter of time. I think, you know, mm. things we need to continue to lean on. Um, I think we 
we need to continue to celebrate entrepreneurs and the the you know the roles they're playing in our community. I think that mm-hmm. that's a really big thing. So, um, you know, I look at it as kind of the narrative of like, um, you know, someone launched a new startup, like we should be rallying behind that and um, seeing how we can get behind them. Um, oftentimes, we cover when like uh, companies fail versus like when new companies are starting up and things like that. And so, you know, if you're publicly kind of shamed for uh, you know having a failing venture. Um, Is that person going to continue to to do the next thing? You know, probably Mm. not. Right. And so I think, you know, continuing to support the the founder community in that way. Um, Tactically, I think there's uh, some growth we need uh, in terms of like building our capital uh, um, base here. So I think we definitely have the resources Mm. to invest. Um, You know, I was just actually on the um, Marcaney show and we were chatting Mm. about um, the similar topic was, um, you know, when we look at capital and how it's been uh, accumulated here in Sacramento, most of it's been through real estate and some of those types of ventures, which is awesome and has been a key component to, you know, investing in the growth of Sacramento. Um, but that asset class is a, a less risky form of capital, mm-hmm. right? You own a piece of land versus owning a share of a startup that might uh, go bye-bye. Mm-hmm, um, right. So, that's one of the th- things I think is uh, starting to educate people on the asset class of venture capital and angel investing and in startups. Um, and I think if we got some of that investment into our ecosystem, we would really start to, to flourish. And then the last thing is, I think we're kind of trying to build out this uh, kind of the, your senior executive level um, for some of these early stage teams. So we're getting a lot of activity and people starting these businesses, but to get from like, you know, say your seed to series A, you really need some of this like skilled expertise. And so getting people that have some of that experience to join these early teams um, is an area that can continue to catalyze our our region. Mm, Interesting. Okay. So as far as capital goal goes, you know, educating um, people like real estate people who have a lot of money, who are feeling a little, um, kind of squirmish around risk, you know, because they're so used to, um, a more safe investment. Uh, so do you think there's an element of like trying to convince them, but maybe a different strategy, like, you know, getting other people in different areas who have invested in, you know, startups and just recruiting them here and investing in Sacramento? Do you think that's a more effective strategy than trying to you know, convince people who are just rather be safe? Yeah, it's a great point. I think, I don't think it's an either, I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's Mm a, you know, a both strategy. Um, I think, you know, uh, the more we're investing in our own community, the more people are going to want to invest in Sacramento as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think, you know, bringing capital from outside the region in is a key component. Um, The pandemic was actually probably, um, you know, as cha- like it's very challenging for many, many people. But in terms of like the way investment is shifted, is it's not you don't have to relocate to the Bay Area or or things like that. And so um, I think that that's always been a challenge was to seek capital outside of the region. It came with we well, have to move outside of the region, so mm. you're no longer a company here. Versus like oh, we'll invest in you in Sacramento, and your run rate is uh, much better because it's cheaper to live here. Um, and, and those types of things. So I think that that's a, a core component. But in terms of, you know, education, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's providing exposure to to the asset class. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's, you know, part of it is connecting them to, 
you know, if you knew how to do due diligence and you lived and breathed like the real estate world, and then now you're switching into like, okay, how do I, you know, uh, look at a startup and, and, and bring that same level of expertise that you felt you had in other investments, um, you know, that takes time. And so I think building out those kind of connections to do so will be key. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And in order to bring um, outside capital in, we had to, we have to convince them that there's actually startups worth investing, you know, like really great talented founders, like you said, um, but also great ideas and a lot of innovative startups here for them to want to do that. Yeah. And I mean, a great example is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Growth Factory, which is a new mm -hmm. uh, um, accelerator that launched and has an accompanying venture fund. And I'm one of their advisory board members. But, you know, one of the questions when they're raising that fund and launching the accelerator was, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, do we have, you know, that great of deal flow in Sacramento? And I mean, in a matter of 18 months, I think they've invested into over 30 startups um, mm -hmm. and that are, you know, tracking well. And so there's definitely the um, investment opportunities here in the region. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's just a, a matter of time where we start to get that kind of flywheel. One of the um, big things and kind of the role that I play, I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, would say I'm an ecosystem builder um, to support, you know, the broader community and fostering more entrepreneurial activity. But one of the key things is what we call entrepreneurial recycling. So when you start to get people that have exits or um, people who've, you know, uh, sold their company, um, they not only reinvest in the actual other startups, but they also share that experience and expertise, which kind of just levels us up. And so we, mm. once we get that going, we kind of have that flywheel effect where our ecosystem starts just growing on its own. Right. Yeah. It's like having mentors, you know, who've done it before and can give you advice on what they did um, yeah. to increase the chance of success, you know, and then you add that with money, uh, their money. I mean, it's a... a you know, winning formula. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, so earlier you mentioned like, you know, when I asked you about like 90% of startups fail, and then you shared two reasons. One of them was not having the right team, or maybe the team just kind of breaks apart. So how do people know whether or not they should either have a team or like what to look for in other team members, other partners? I think always, always, if you can have, have a team, um, obviously you want to have the right people. Um, I think it's, uh, um, is it Tim, Jim Collins? Um, you know, he's like, not, it's, a uh, you know, the right people on the right seat on the right bus, like that type of, um, mm. you know, approach. Um, that certainly takes time, but you know, when you look at early stage investments, I mean, that's one of the biggest criteria they look at is who's on the team and why are all these people working together? Mm. Um, and that's usually, do they have a committed, vision and passion to like realize this project um, or this startup. Um, but then also do they uh, complement one another in terms of their skill set, right? So often you get the, oh, we want to build a technology solution, but we're all business people. So it's like, well, who's going to build the thing? Or mm. you have the like the very technical person who like, you know, has already built out the app and all the things, but has no clue who wants it or why they want it or who their customer is, right? And so when you start to build those two uh, types of personalities and bring them together, that's a really key um, starting point for any of that team building. Um, you know, some of the things that we work with early stage founders is helping them do like founders agreements. So like um, asking them questions of like, what does success look like for you? Um, and some, you mm -hmm. know, might say, oh, well, I want to 
make $150,000 a year for the next 30 years. And then the other person might be, well, I want to exit this company in five years. Well, those are very mm -hmm. different uh, success criteria. And so will that company even work because you have different visions of where that ultimately goes? And so um, asking some of those key questions can help uh, alleviate pain uh, later in the, um, you know, in the entrepreneurial journey. Hmm. Interesting. So, so is that really what you found to really break founders apart is, you know, not having the right you know, partnership where someone has a different vision for the company. Someone wants to make 150 K for, you know, X number of years and the other person wants to exit um, and then not having the right personality type in between, you know, between the two, or have you seen anything else that could potentially break up partnerships? Yeah. I mean, I think there's just a myriad of things that can come about. Um, it could mm -hmm. be, you know, someone making a poor decision and, um, you know, people not supporting each other on it. It could be, mm -hmm. um, you know, we just, they're, they don't have the expertise um, and they're not willing to bring other people on um, to help in that way. Um, I mean, there's just, yeah, a, a variety of challenges that I think can come, come into it. And I think at the end of the day, like, it's people we're talking about, right? And I think mm -hmm. often we uh, associate startups to be like its own thing in, in a way a corporation or an entity has its own structure and life to it. But at, at the end of the day, it's people that are running it. And so um, there's just issues that arise, right? And so um, how does the team manage that conflict? Do they have open communication and dialogue? Do they actually discuss those things or um, are there, you know, blowups or, you know, especially when you start to raise capital and you have other, now you have board of directors that are coming in and saying, you need to do these things. Um, and so does the team have the capacity to um, continue to push forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. It's, it's almost like a second marriage, you know, a, a marriage in business, you know, where you get, there's like a, a vow of commitment in the beginning and hashing all those things out, um, like a vision for the, in the partnership. And then, you know, as problems arise, it's like working those problems out together, having open communication, having open feedback, being supportive, being understanding, being empathetic. So yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it really is a second marriage, but in business, you know, totally a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you're committing to, um, you know, a long time together, you know, if the exit's going to be seven years, that's longer than uh, a good number of marriages for sure. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, that's a, a significant commitment that people would be making um, to one another for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, with social media, I think it's really neat that people with entrepreneurial tendencies, people that you know, just kind of have in their DNA can learn from people so accessibly, you know, like you have like the gurus out there, all the business icons out there, people can go to YouTube and listen to these, you know, the people that are successful um, business icons. Um, are there anybody that, is there anybody that you just kind of admire in the business space, like, um, and just uh, show them some love here? <laughs> yeah, good, good question. I think that the people we, I often like, follow and you know would praise for their work i think there's kind of like three groups um so the first one is uh ash moria and lean stack um he has a book two books called running lean and scaling lean um mm -hmm. and we've really adopted a lot of the methodologies and tools that um he's come up with so one being the lean canvas 
Um, but one of the, the key things he pushes forward is it's uh, as a founder, especially at the early stages, and I'd say, you know, throughout the life of your company is um, maintaining this love of the problem and not the solution that you're creating. Really what that is all about is setting the mindset that it's about solving the needs of your customer. You still want to build the solution um, and all those things, but um, if you just focus on building the solution and not tying it to actual needs, there's not going to be any market viability there. And so um, mm. that's one of the, the key um, elements in terms of um, another person would be uh, David Bland, who's actually in uh, Roseville. Um, and he's an author um, of a book called Testing Business Ideas. Um, and it helps entrepreneurs systematically test their riskiest assumptions. So almost takes like the scientific approach to say, you know, if you're launching your business, you know, as you're starting, one of the riskiest things is, do you know that your customers actually want this? Or mm -hmm. is do they use these channels to find the information? And so um, it's a really great resource. And then uh, I think, you know, one other person who um, I just launched a, um, a podcast with, his name's uh, Josh David Miller. Um, we uh, The podcast is called Zero to Traction, but um, he's definitely someone who has a you know deep expertise in um, kind of getting uh, to traction um, and really brings on this kind of support for founders in that space. So. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, that seems like, you know, a lot of great resources for entrepreneurs. And um, and we could, you know, link that in the show notes for people to be able to access. So is there something recently that you've learned, you know, that, that you changed your mind about, you know, maybe you had a worldview that was a certain way. And then after, you know, learning or hearing someone talk, you're like, huh, I never thought of it that way. And then like it, it changed. Hmm. Um, the worldview shift. I don't know that I've had any like aha moment shifts here recently. Um, yeah, I, I um. I mean, I think that the thought that came to mind was a, a podcast for more work than I was expecting. So uh, <laughs> kudos to to you and uh, continuing to to produce. That was a one aha moment was like uh, seeing the the work behind the scenes to to get there. So that was one. Um, but I think it's just the like, um, you know, everyone has their own like kind of like entrepreneurial journey. And um, I think for me, that's like just continuing to learn from founders you know, every day of, you know, um, you know, everyone has a different background into how they're trying to solve the problems and those types of things. So I think that that just always keeps me learning. I don't know that it's like oh, an aha moment. I'm pretty open to hearing new opinions um, and, and thoughts. And I think I naturally kind of absorb those. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, isn't it funny how like, I'd, I'm guilty of this too, is how humans in general we kind of underestimate you know how hard something's going to be you know like we watch sports sometimes like I, I'm a baseball fan too and it's like why, why didn't you hit that ball or like <laughs> or like how did you you know how did you miss that or like why did you hit at that you know it's obvious um like we underestimate the hard work it takes you know <laughs> yeah it's the uh as one of my my favorite authors uh, Simon Sinek says it's kind of like the iceberg right you see you see only the tip, but you don't see all the like uh, the work and stuff that went into, you know, realizing that part of the, you know, iceberg. And so, um, yeah, definitely, you know, seems easier than when, you know, you like, oh, wait, it took all these things to get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, so and, 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 you know, for some it's easier and some some not so. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love um, Simon Sinek, you know, the uh, 
I mean, there, he's given so many talks at this point, you know, and he, I love his style, his communication style and the way he communicates things and his thought leadership. Um, any particular like books or things that really stood out uh, for you from him? Uh, I mean, the book Start With Why, like that changed mm -hmm. my life for sure. Um, so I read that when I was in Australia and just really kind of connected mm -hmm. me to like grounding of like, why do I do certain things? And um, that's one of my big things in working with students as I talk about like leadership is helping people understand like their their purpose and, um, their, and their value. So um, I, I love that book. Um, I also like the uh, um, uh, Leaders uh, Eat Last. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if you've Love read that, that one. one. So, mm -hmm. um, and I, one of the big takeaways for that was, you know, as I shared when I kind of introduced myself, one of my values is service. And um, he talks a lot about how when you serve other people, you release oxytocin, right? So you mm -hmm. actually like your brain mm -hmm. gets a high off of doing that. And so um, it's, it's partly, yes, you want to go serve other people and do that work, but it also is self-serving as it makes you feel better um, and mm -hmm. feel good. So, um, so I think that that's always been, uh, that was a key learning for me was when I, uh, am not sometimes in line with that, that, that value set, um, partly is like, oh, there's a, a misalignment of my connection, but it's also my brain saying like, Hey, you're not doing the things that you need to be, be doing. Um, mm -hmm. so I thought that that was a, a key takeaway. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember the author, but I read this book recently um, called uh, uh, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out. Um, and mm. it's a pretty good book about finding kind of your constellation of what they call catalyzers. So um, the people around you that are trying to create change and, and an impact. And oftentimes we, we run in this place where we feel like we're getting stuck and pushing a, a rock uphill, but continuing to connect with people that are uh, similar in that space um, and, mm. and having those conversations to say, this is where I'm at. Um, Cause I think often we, we don't share those things. Um, mm. And I, you know, definitely in terms of like empathizing with founders, it's a, you know, isolating journey. And so the more you share that with people um, and seek those uh, supports, you know, there's people out there to support you. And um, it's just kind of a matter of asking and seeking that support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head, you know, oftentimes, especially, like in a place like startup land, it's especially if you come from a place where, you know, your family is an entrepreneurial and everybody's kind of working a nine to five, um, you kind of might feel a little pulled back. You know, they might be like, why are you working so hard? You know, why are you working a hundred hours a week? Why are you working 120 hours a week? And they don't experience the same problems and the same, you know, things that you face in working a nine to five, you know, so the responsibilities are different. And so how do you seek other people that are like you that are going through the exact same thing? Because I think as humans, we kind of sometimes feel like we are the only ones with a certain problem, you know, and, and we're kind of like self-centered in that way, but understand that other people are going out. You know, there's 8 billion people in the world. There's going to be someone like you who's going through the exact same thing. And how can you seek out people like that and just share? No, I couldn't mm -hmm. agree more. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um, so... That's, let's talk about the, the uh, first book you mentioned, um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. So I feel like a lot of um, young adults might, you know, feel a little stuck, you know, and I think that just might be just what being a young adult is, you know, you just kind of feel stuck or you don't know what your purpose is in life. And I think um, the school system doesn't really help by like, 
forcing people to choose a major, you know, and like figuring it out by 22, because you're not going to figure it out by 22, or at least most people don't. Um, so like, how do people find their why? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, well, one, start by reading the book. But, um, no, I think, <laughs> I think, I think what it, what it is to me is I think it's, um, it's not easy work, right? Like you, um, you could say like, oh, my, this is my why, but does it like, do you actually like have a connection to it? Like, does it mean something to you? Um, and I like to think of like a why, and you brought up a great you know point in terms of like, we've kind of uh, set people to go on a path, right? Like mm-hmm. that you signed up to this major and you're going to go do these things. Um, and I like to think of like your why is like, that's your direction. Like, you know mm-hmm. where you're going, um, but the job or vehicle to creating that impact or change or realizing the belief that you have. Um, can take many different forms. So, you know, when I look at my own kind of personal passion was, um, you know, I, as I shared, I moved to Brisbane, Australia to do my master's of business. Um, and Brisbane was a lot like Sacramento, built along a river, two great higher ed institutions. Um, but there was just a vibrancy there that I felt like Sacramento was missing. Um, they activated their riverfronts. They had uh, a ferry that went up and down the river um, and they had a vibrant uh, startup ecosystem. And so, for me was like, my why was like, I wanted to realize what I felt and uh, uh, experienced in Brisbane and, and have that take place in Sacramento, because I felt like people um, were missing out on this amazing opportunity. And so um, that's kind of been my personal mission, you know, coming uh, back to Sacramento. And so, you know, along that journey, I found myself, you know, working for a venture capital firm, running a nonprofit organization and working in uh, higher ed. Uh, so it was like, that's not like a typical pathway for someone that's, uh, you know, got a managerial economics degree, right? But it was like mm-hmm. all in line with the why, because every every job I've held has been closer to creating that impact uh, that I want to get, right? I get to a certain place where I can uh, support more and more people or build connections to foster more activity to realize that space um, in my personal passion. So um, I think doing the work though is, you know, um, part of my master's program, they had a class called career transition. And um, we were supposed to create a, a, what was called a career attainment plan. And the first thing was like, what's your vision? What's your personal values? And then setting some goals. And um, you could do that exercise to like check the box and you probably would get an A. But it's like, did you do the work to like figure it out like for you yourself, right? And I think that that's the difference was like, great, I read Start With Why. And I think that this is where I'm going versus like grabbing a hold of it and saying, this is this is it. And I'm speaking that truth to other people and saying that this is where we're going. You want to be on it? Let's go this way. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the, the difference for me. Yeah, I think that's totally right is putting in the work, you know. Um, it kind of reminds me of, so like growing up, uh, my parents, they're hardcore Catholics. And one of the things that I learned from Catholicism was the importance of helping other people. And my dad really pushed that down is, is really serving others. And so um, growing up, I watched a lot of CSI crime shows with my mom. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's cool. They're helping people, you know, like detectives are helping people. So that's what I went to Sac State for is criminal justice in the beginning. And then um after taking a few classes, I'm like, oh, this is not for me. You know, like a lot of the people sometimes that they put in jail are people that came from really bad backgrounds, you know, like let's focus on the root cause is helping them when they're younger or, you know, fixing their background. So then I went, uh, changed my major of social work 
you know, and then after doing a few social work classes, I ran into a <laughs> another problem. It's like, hmm, you're telling me I have to enforce the law if I don't agree with, you know, maybe a policy that someone else created that might not be best for the family, you know? And so I didn't like that I was in control of being able to make that impact sometimes. Um, and same thing with law enforcement. It's like sometimes you have to follow, I mean, you have to enforce the law even if you don't agree with it, right? And so, um, and then I bumped into a business opportunity, like an entrepreneur uh, internship where um, a company called College Works Painting, and they invest a few thousand dollars to students. At, I did, I did College Works Painting too. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I, um, I did that for three years. You know, I learned how to generate leads, going door to door, selling, um, you know, hiring a team of painters, you know, managing the project. So, and then I realized, wow, I can make an impact through business. You know, what if I use business for good? and, and uh, be able to make that social impact. And, and one thing I learned is that money rules the world, you know, and so how can you use that money to, to, to really make that impact? So, and, and so I could cr uh, creatively express myself through business and I create my own rules and I can still make an impact. So it was, it was the perfect thing for me, you know, um, but it was a journey. It was putting in the work of like doing internships, doing, you know, volunteering, you know, like, you start to figure out what you like and what you don't like. And so if you don't figure out in the beginning, that's totally fine. It's, it's, it's a process, you know? Yeah. And I, th I think, I mean, one of the, you know, simple tools and it's used in startups or, you know, design thinking all the time is like the five whys, like, okay, you want to be at this position, like why, and then keep getting down. Like, why does that matter? Um, and I think that there's simple things like, those exercises, but you have to like genuinely sit down and think about them. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I will be honest, I haven't been as good in this practice, but one of the key things like kind of catalyzing my career was uh, journaling and, mm -hmm. you know, writing down, like, you know, uh, answering those questions and thinking like, Hey, you know, this has shifted or those types of things and being kind of true to myself of these are the conversations that I'm having and what, what is continuing to, uh, get firmer and firmer. And what am I saying? This, this matters less to me. Um, and so I think that that could be a really good practice, but I think it's really just getting and having that conversation and, and not doing it because someone else is asking you to do it. Um, it's doing the exercise because it's going to return, you know, a ton for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I need to do again. I did that a lot in middle school and high school as journal and a little bit in college. And then I stopped but um, but there's something powerful about taking your thoughts in your mind and writing them down and putting it into the physical world. You know, there's there's almost like a magic that happens when you do that. Yeah, I mean, part of what what catalyzed me, I had read the uh, um, it was the uh, Alexander Hamilton, like big Ron Trenow, like the <laughs> 750 page book. And I mean, this might be sound very like egotistical, but I was like, you know, if they could find my journals, you know, they'll, they'll be saying some cool things. But right. um, that was kind of the catalyst for writing it down. But obviously there's like the impact of like people that um, we have these journals or we have information of people that have made significant changes in our world. Mm -hmm. And that that's probably a practice that they've had is that they wrote things down right. um, and that made it more real and true to them. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's, um, you know, one thing that uh, Gary Vaynerchuk says, and uh, he creates video content, you know, obviously for business development and brand awareness, but also 
is like now I have this huge stash of videos that my great, 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 great grandkids can see, mm. you know, and see what I was like, you know, and it's like, I would love to see what my great, 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 great grandpa was like, you know, but I don't have any video. And so that's another unique thing is like, we have this technology that generations down the road, people can, you know, our family members can see, you know. I've never, yeah, I've never thought of that. That's a, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I know there's like solutions out there to like, you know, capture stories to like pass down for generations, but mm-hmm. yeah, you have like a whole digital footprint that um, our, you know, future kids and, you know, whatnot will be able to to see. Right. And with your podcast, you know, same thing, people will be able to hear you now <laughs> or your, yeah. your uh, future, future grandkids will, will uh, be able to see what you're like. Awesome. So um, just to kind of wrap up, you know, like, let's say there's uh, someone young listening and they want to go into the entrepreneurial um, entrepreneurship and, uh, and build a startup. Like what are maybe like step-by-step, step, what should they do to start second step, third step, and how can they get started? Yeah. The, the first thing is just start connecting with people in the space. So, I mean, reach out to me, I think is a is a great uh, starting point. And there's also um, many kind of community forums to plug into. So I'm a, as I shared an organizer for 1 million cups. We meet every Wednesday where two entrepreneurs present their business and get, uh, you know, about 20 minutes of Q and a for each of them. And so it's a great forum to be around like-minded people. And I think you start to see what people are looking for in good businesses um, and startups. And so I think just plugging into that and what each of those things kind of do is they serve as like a front porch to getting into all the resources that are out there. And so, you know, um, I think it depends on partly like what stage you might be and where you're kind of at. But if you're at the idea stage and you're like, you know what, I'm interested in startups and I want to like explore this space, um, just start plugging into to resources um, and getting to know people. Because when that one idea that you're like, you know what, I want to go in all in on this idea, you now have the infrastructure to help you get going. Um, tactically, one of the things uh, as, you know, kind of in building the business would be like continuing to narrow down who's your customer and what problems do they have um, Mm -hmm. and kind of setting aside some of the solution because that's going to bias what you think their problems are versus like, I think that this is who I'm targeting and I think they have these problems. Go talk to them. Do they have those problems? Yes. Okay. Continue to hone in on what that looks like. And so those would be some of the starting recommendations. Um, Last thing would be, find someone else passionate about solving that problem and, and add them to the team. Awesome. Well said, Cameron. Thank you for summarizing that. And thank you for being on the podcast. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, the, the best way is to just search me on LinkedIn. That's usually the best place to find me. So Cameron R. Law is where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I'm on all the other kind of socials, uh, Instagram and, and Facebook. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely give, uh, the Carlson center, um, a reach out if you're interested in getting kind of access to entrepreneurial support. We have a weekly e-newsletter that goes out. So just type in Carlson center, Sac state, and, um, our resources are here to support you, whether you're a Sac state student or not, um, we're here to support you. And then lastly is, uh, yeah, definitely. If you want to um, follow our podcast as well, the zero detraction podcast, um, is where we're at, but I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. And, um, yeah, this was a great conversation and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, Cameron, likewise, I really enjoyed this. I'm so glad we got to connect on so many different things, even college horse painting, shout out to college horse painting. Thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.